Are you the victim of an all or nothing mindset when it comes to alcohol? Every time that you try and fail to drink less or not at all, the belief that I can't do this gets stronger. But sometimes you do get it right. And while that feels good, it's also confusing and scary because you don't know if your problem is real. And while having the occasional hangover is one thing, normalizing blackouts, brain fog, and anxiety is not a boss move, which is how many of us end up doing the one thing we swore we'd never do, ask for help. But if you've ever Googled sober curious or alcohol-free lifestyle, you know there's a lot of help out there. And the upfront messaging of the sober community is inviting. You no longer have to identify as an alcoholic or quit drinking forever. Just call yourself a non-drinker with a zero tolerance policy for poison. Wink, wink. Well, today I'm bringing you a very special conversation with my friend and fellow sobriety coach, Camille Kinsler. You've got a backseat pass to our conversation about our own personal evolutions as we've had to navigate the sobriety culture. You'll hear how we went from being heavy drinkers to non-drinkers to sobriety coaches who have reclaimed our personal power to the extent that we are comfortable not only with our ability to drink in moderation, but our willingness to talk about it on a podcast. My name is Colleen Cashman. I'm a soberish recovery coach helping high achieving women get emotionally sober so that drinking less or not at all feels like a superpower. Join me each week for evidence-based holistic strategies to regulate your brain chemistry and nervous system and also develop a growth mindset so you can feel proud, confident, and resilient with or without a drink in your hand because it's not about the alcohol. I get a lot of good feedback from people who see the title of my podcast, It's Not About the Alcohol, and that resonates. They're like, yeah, it's not about the alcohol. But that leaves the question, what is it about? And if I had to boil it down, I would say that it's learning to think as an emotionally sober person so that you're no longer intoxicated by your own bullshit. You're able to separate fact from fiction, you know, the story you're telling yourself in your head so that you can broaden your perspective and explore what else could be true. How else could I show up? How do I learn to think and then act from a place of personal power and use my brain to solve my problems instead of letting it run on autopilot while I do laps around the cul-de-sac of stupidity? How do I change my relationship with myself so that I no longer need to numb or avoid or escape the thoughts in my head and the feelings in my body? Because once you realize that it's not what will or won't or did or didn't happen that cause your feelings, it's your thoughts about what will or won't or did or didn't happen that cause your feelings and that you can change your mind about anything at any time and think new thoughts on purpose. You know, managing your mind is the mothership of all skills. It's literally the superpower you've been looking for. Once you realize you're the problem, you become the solution. It's not alcohol that you crave. It's relief 
from your own mind and quite frankly, power, the ability to act on the world in a way that gets you what you need and want. I want to share with you a simple example of what this looks like. One of my clients got into the hot seat on a group call this week because she felt bad about a passive aggressive comment that she had made to her husband. He had agreed to take a neighbor kid skiing with them for the weekend and it pissed her off and she really didn't even know why. And she's just tired of feeling bitter and resentful and she can't understand why she can't just be nice and go with the flow. And so we dove into it and we discovered that the reason why it's so hard for her to be nice is she's carrying a shit ton of resentment. For years, her husband wasn't nearly as available when she was stuck at home raising their own children. And now suddenly he's the cool guy that lives next door. She's angry because her husband makes decisions like that and then expects her to handle all of the details. She's angry that she has anxiety about leaving their dogs because of some psycho neighbor that I guess literally shoots at them if they escape through a hole in the fence that her husband doesn't wanna spend the money to fix. And that's just the tip of the iceberg and also why she got into the habit of using alcohol as a consolation prize, as a reward for putting up with a bunch of crap. You know, we're exchanging our voice and we're silencing ourselves in exchange for drink tickets because that's easier than making sense of our feelings. And that's why my next chapter program is a minimum of 12 weeks to a year because you can't unpack all of this overnight. The truth is the longer you use alcohol to quote, be nice and go with the flow, the more your brain is like a junk drawer of tangled cords with thoughts and jumbled feelings and everything's connected to this. And yeah, it blows your emotional circuit breakers to try to make sense of why it's pissing you off that now you got a neighbor kid coming with you skiing. And my job as a coach, what my program does is provide you with the tools to work through this. It's kind of like when my younger brother came home with dreadlocks and was gonna shave his head after you know years of not washing or combing his hair. And my dad offered out of love to sit and fine tooth comb his hair. And six hours later, my brother had a beautiful long head of hair. That's kind of what I do as a coach. I help you untangle those dreadlocks that you've not washed or combed for years. And while there's no way to do all of that in one coaching call, it took us about 12 minutes in this story to separate the fact from fiction so that she could decide what to let go of, where to set boundaries, and how to reclaim her personal power within this situation as well as her relationship so that she no longer feels like a passive, aggressive, bitter and resentful woman who needs a drink to deal with everybody else's bullshit into a version of herself who knows the difference between a problem her brain is creating and the logistical issues that have to be dealt with in the outside world. That's the work we do in the next chapter. And so if you want someone to hold up a mirror so you can see where you're blaming other people for situations you actually have the power to change, and if you want help unpacking the emotional baggage that means one comment from your partner can send you into a three-day spiral where you're projecting your crap from 10 years ago onto whatever you're doing next week, you have to learn how to feel your feelings instead of overthinking them. There's a difference. 
and that's a skill. So if you're struggling with alcohol in some way, maybe you're on the start and stop cycle, maybe you're still falling asleep with a drink in your hand, maybe you've been sober for a while and you'd really like to just go back to being a normal person, whatever your story is, you realize that what has to change is your relationship with yourself because it's not about the alcohol. You're not in a relationship with alcohol. That's not a thing. And if you're ready to invest the time and energy and focus it's going to take to create a permanent solution so you can stop starting over, pause this episode and get in the show notes and register for my free masterclass. I've actually broken the content into two parts. So once you register, you'll get instant access to my pre-recorded webinar called The Five Mistakes That Turn Normal Drinkers Into Overdrinkers. So you have a clear understanding of alcohol use disorder, what it is, how to know if you have it, and what you need to do to get over it. So all that info's out of the way, and you can show up for the live event with me ready to learn how to apply the seven core principles of emotional sobriety that I teach in my accelerated recovery process. And even if you have no intention of joining my program, this is a highly valuable training session. You'll walk away with a brand new perspective of what's really going on when you find yourself over drinking. So you can stop trying to use willpower to change your behavior and focus on the cause of the behavior. And as we dive into the episode, that's exactly what you're gonna hear Camille and I discuss. This is an unedited conversation about how we discovered that your desire to drink changes when you focus on following your dharma or following your purpose. We're gonna give you a vulnerable backseat view of our personal evolutions from overdrinkers to non-drinkers to moderate drinkers and explain exactly why our opinions have changed about the all or nothing approach to sobriety. So enjoy the episode. Camille, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. You and I have been friends for a few years now. And when I first quit drinking, you were one of the women I met at a She Recovers conference and you had a podcast and you were just all that in a bag of chips. And what I really like about our relationship now is both of us have kind of navigated our way out of the sober identity. And so I think we have a lot of good stuff to talk about today about some of the pitfalls of what we were just talking before we started recording that alcohol use disorder, you know, you can replace that with sobriety disorder. And maybe we'll talk about what we both believe that means and what the real path to healing is, you know, just like the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And I think we're kindred spirits when it comes to that attitude with alcohol. So before we get too into it, can you introduce yourself to my audience? Tell them who you are and what you do. Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much for having me. And the re, you reminded me of when I first met you. So I'm going to tell a little story about that first. Oh. I think, yeah, we were poolside uh-huh. and we were, you know, connecting just based off of being coaches within the space. And then I was going to take off my, my cover up. And you were like, 
oh, okay, that's what we're doing here. We're taking off the cover up. We're getting vulnerable. We're exposing ourselves. And I just love that about you and me because I felt like that was a really good connection. Like we are comfortable with each other. We can be comfortable with our bodies. We can be comfortable with our message. And I feel like that's what we're doing right now, talking about this vulnerable space of going from sobriety in alcohol-free and recovery to where we are now. It's like we're taking off that cover-up again and exposing you know, who we are. Yes. It's another layer of exposure. Yes. And what I will say about having done a lap in the sober community, three years I spent there, is that's what draws you in, is sitting poolside next to somebody and being able to be vulnerable and be like, am I supposed to take my swimsuit cover up off? Like I'm almost 50 years old. One would think I could make a decision like that for myself, but I felt raw and vulnerable and you were just a little farther ahead down the road. And I could just say, Hey, can you be like my big sister here and tell me, you know, what we're doing? And so I think that having that community Mm -hmm. is so important. And Part of the problem with the sober community is it does sometimes in some spaces, not so much she recovers, but in some spaces it comes with a dogma. You know, it's kind of like agreeing to be Catholic and then you have to stand up and say the liturgy or you're a Democrat, so you are pro this and anti that. And so it's the same thing with sobriety. And so I just want to be clear when we talk about sobriety, we are referring to the lifestyle, the 100% alcohol-free that doesn't leave a lot of room for merging that back into real life. Does that gel with what you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really good segue for me to introduce myself. Um, I'm Camille Kinsler. I am many things and I wear many hats and none of them are more important than others. I can really honestly say that being a mother, you would think that I would say that's my biggest, most precious job. And I do love my kids without a shadow of a doubt. But at some point, at some times within my day or with my week or year, the shift, the focus is shift on other aspects. I'm a wife. I'm a woman. I'm in midlife where I'm recreating who I am and my hormones are trying to catch up with all that. I'm also a physician assistant, which for those who are not in the United States, it's a, a clinician. I can diagnose and treat medical illness. And I've been doing that for over a decade. And one of the things that I found when I was in practice is this idea of labeling, right? This idea of the diagnosis around being in recovery, being an addict, being sober, having heart disease, having diabetes, being obese actually really can trap us in this mindset versus trap us in this identity versus really creating the one of of health and wholeness, which I feel like is who we really naturally are, right? We all came in out of the womb that way. And and that's what I recognized when I was on this journey after five years of not drinking, that I didn't resonate with that identity anymore. And that really is what became kind of my mischievous side to where I was like, what would happen if, what would happen if I dropped the label and just became, you know, a woman who was living this life who is a, exploring. And we can get into this a little bit more, Colleen, because it's so nuanced. And this is really the first time that I've actually really spoken about the journey of 
quitting drinking and then drinking again. You are you are now my kind of leader in this space and guide as to where this conversation is going to go. Yeah. One of the things that we do when she recovers that I loved in that culture is to talk about what we're in recovery from. And I expanded, you know, I'm here because I drink too much and I have alcohol use disorder to then being open about my former eating disorder and then playing with it with the idea that I'm in recovery from perfectionism. And now I go all the way and I'm like, I'm in recovery from recovery. I'm in recovery from sobriety. I'm in recovery from all the labels and all the boxes that I have tried to crawl into and make myself fit and sit in there and not acknowledge that I am a changing, evolving human being. And, you know, one of the things I teach in my program is one of the core principles is radical honesty and understanding that truth is an experience in the present moment, not an idea you heard or that some doctor or some friend or anybody told you. Mm -hmm. And that yesterday's truth is tomorrow's bullshit. And we get caught in, that's where we end up living in our heads because we're not okay to trust our bodies or ourselves and our relationship with our bodies in the present moment to take good care of ourselves, to self-correct after a stupid mistake. And that's just part of being a human. And instead we get attached to all these dogmas and philosophies and religion, like I've said, the religion of sobriety, where you're not allowed to drink NA beer. Do you remember that? Like when yeah. I first went in, I went to AA and they're like, you cannot have a non-alcoholic beer. And I was like, why? And they're like, because it'll trigger you to want more. I'm like, I don't even like beer. So I don't really know how this is. Or they said, get the vanilla extract out of your kitchen. I was like, why? Because it's full of alcohol and you'll drink it. And I was like, I didn't even know it had alcohol. <laughs> you know, so it's like this... Perf- they were making me feel like I couldn't, like it made it worse, you know, and I exchanged that little voice inside me for the community that I got. And ultimately that was a good exchange. And and then I evolved to realize, oh, I have a choice too. And there's people like you and me out there and how scary it is to admit to each other especially in the space of recovery. She recovers of, yeah, sometimes I drink wine and I don't have any shame about that. It's just not really the place to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to open up is amazing. I think that where it started for me, when I removed alcohol originally, we can talk a little bit about the origin story with that is, I mean, it was a situation where I would try all the things to moderation. I didn't even know that I was moderating. I think a lot of women can resonate with, you know, I would do the water between drinks or only drink on the weekend. And then I would give in on Wednesday and decided that I would only drink rosé and instead of gin, all of the things. And so I really did need a reset. And I really did feel that after a hundred days of not drinking, that was the trajectory I needed to continue in. And then as it goes with life, we start hearing, and pretty quickly on, I drank the Kool-Aid and really wanted to be, really wanted everyone to know what how amazing yeah. an alcohol-free life was. And, um, and started diving in and doing my own research about how do we change when we really want to, but it's really hard, right? It's so freaking hard to change, even when we desperately want to. So really going down the Role, um, going down the rabbit hole of studying habits and 
mindset and fixed mindset versus, which I know that you're really into neuroplasticity, the way that our brains can actually change in our cells and our bodies. And, but at the same time, I was also learning more about how addictive alcohol was. So the pendulum swung from it being on the person who has, you know, genes that are malfunctioned and that's why they drink too much to this other end to where it was alcohol. So if you drink alcohol, beware, you're going to overdrink. You're going to have alcohol use disorder at some point. Yeah. And so then it's I was not good here. for anybody. It's, it's not- a neurotoxic class one carcinogenic, you know, mood altering, horrible poison. Yeah. Which I mean, it has all of that, right? But it was like that was, it became the villain, right? It became mm-hmm. the villain in my own story. And I didn't even recognize that. I didn't realize that's what I was creating. But then it was just this, oh, behind the, if I slip, am I going to be seduced? By this, you know, seductive, villainous substance. The fear is that I had to deal with, that you had to deal with, that everybody who's been programmed in that way, like I said, you, I loved what you said, drink the Kool-Aid, the alcohol-free Kool-Aid. Once you've drank that, then the fear is programmed into you that a single sip or a drink or, you know, a couple times over Christmas will reawaken the monster, the addict, that is somehow something that lives inside you and you're going to go back. And it is that fear that has to be addressed before you ever pour, you know, a little bit of that dose related poison. You know, I think of alcohol now like birthday cake. I don't eat too much of it. I don't eat it every day, but it's like birthday cake is poison too. I mean, read the ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Unless it's homemade and your mom made it. I mean, that's different. Because <laughs> it has a little bit of love in there too. Yeah. Unless it's got love, that cancels out the high fructose corn syrup. So you're <laughs> Yeah. There was something that I really wanted to touch on when we were talking about- we Yeah, we'll edit. Part. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Because I lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll jump in then and share the story of how- When I was growing up, I had bulimia and it was really bad. And I started puking up my food. I think I was eight. I was like an underweight, malnourished eight-year-old. I don't even know like how I knew to do it. I must have stumbled upon something. And it started this disordered pattern of eating and thinking. And then, of course, that kind of transferred to alcohol in college. So Bottom line is I didn't outgrow my bulimia. I always thought I would. And there I am, a 35, 36-year-old woman still binging and purging almost on a daily basis. I'd go in and out of patterns. But what I found is the solution for me was to go completely vegan. That was the first time in my life, I don't know if I was 36, 37, where I was no longer bothered by eating foods that were not good or overeating because my brain was like, nobody goes to fat camp on berries and broccoli. So this is safe. I found it. And so I was able to, I'm going to go with cure, with air quotes around it, cure the bulimia. I never had it again. And I became a staunch vegan. And for 10 years, that kept me safe. But then I started to notice I was craving, I was jealous of my dog licking the bone marrow out of a bone. And I was, you know, headaches and my hormones were malfunctioning. And I remember my doctor respecting my diet, 
prescribing all of these supplements and saying, if you just take all these, since you're not willing to change your diet. And by then I was like, hold up, hold the bus. What do you mean change my diet? Like I'm eating perfectly. You know, I'm in sh- and she, we then started talking about orthorexia mm. and how I had become extremely rule based and driven, just like you talked about, you know, trying not to drink on certain days or having rules with water or not drinking gin, but only like I was obsessed with the rules. And so that's where I was introduced to the concept of orthorexia. And at first I took great offense because just like with alcohol, excuse me, hi, all of the foods all of those people are eating are poison and I'm nourishing my body. But it was really just the flip side of the coin from the bulimia. It was just healthier outcome. And I often think that sobriety, if you got to pick that between having a raging drinking problem, go with sobriety. Like it's amazing. But it's still that black or white, all or nothing perfectionistic mindset. And that's where I'm kind of playing as I shared with you before we started this idea that there's sobriety disorder. People think that the solution to drinking too much is to stop drinking altogether. Mm -hmm. But now you've just traded one all for a nothing. And it was for me, I don't know about you, and maybe you can speak to your own journey. It was when I had a few years into sobriety where I started to realize there was a lot of evidence that I was a moderate person, that I was able to do a little bit of something and walk away. And that was where I recognized because I'm a coach, I was like, oh, wait a minute. What if this is a belief? What if this whole sober shit show is just a, a, a dream world that I've created to keep myself safe and the real through line is to create a relationship with myself where I am safe in my body and it's not any rules and that what I need from day to day changes. And if I listen to my body instead of my brain, this might go better. Oh, I absolutely love that. One thing that I recognized when I was in that breakup and makeup cycle with alcohol for so long is that I couldn't trust myself anymore because I would tell myself I wasn't going to do it and then I would do it. And what happened was, you know, again, this is all in hindsight. I didn't recognize that at the time. But then when I got further and further away from it, then I recognized that I could trust myself. I could trust myself. I could trust myself not to drink. And these really in this world that's saturated with alcohol. So that built confidence. But I was able to do it in other areas of my life, too, like waking up early and getting in my morning routine and doing it for now years <laughs> and yeah. exercising and all of those other things and the connection that I built with myself. And so what happened is I knew, like I knew deep in my soul that alcohol wasn't my problem anymore. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't the, it wasn't that villain that I had created. And, but I wasn't allowing myself to trust myself because of being so indoctrinated right with the word on the street right that if you have a sip of alcohol then you're going to be down this spiraling path again and then i came back to myself and said wait what do i believe that i need exactly what you're talking about with the belief system the belief our identity becomes is built off of our beliefs and that didn't fit anymore And that's what really made me curious as to, this is kind of an interesting piece when I had a glass of champagne for the first time. And I felt absolutely horrible afterwards, like guilty horrible. 
like guilty, like deep guilt. And then I had to say, is this mine? Is Mm. this the sober communities? Is this my soul? Right? Is it my soul that's talking? Where does that fit? And that was a trip in and of itself because it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I need alcohol and let me have it all. It was more of now I've reintroduced this thing that I've created as this villain and I'm not feeling aligned with it, but why? Mm-hmm. And putting it out there, and this is just this is just an al- alcohol is just the thing that we're using that could be anything, right? That could be food, that could be relationships, your know, toxic relationships, or anything. And you hold it out in front of you with curiosity and say, look at it from all angles, from three sixty, yeah. and say, like, why is this making me have this reaction, this thought? Is it the belief? Yeah, and also getting deeper is that there is no absolute truth. And that's really scary. So listening to that intuition of, okay, what is the what is it that I'm feeling here? Where is this guilt coming from? That you can let go of the belief that there is a truth. The feeling is being caused by the beliefs, not by the absolute truth. Like you can choose based on your experience in the present moment, based on where you see yourself in a year, you can choose which truth that you lean into. I'm not saying that there's no truth. I'm saying it's all true. Whatever you believe is true. Feeling guilty after drinking, which I had to negotiate and navigate that too, which is why when I work with women, it's not how much you had to drink last night that we're going to talk about. It's how you feel about this morning, how you change your relationship with guilt and shame when it comes up because bad news. You're human. It's going to come up. And so looking at it, like you said, from a place of curiosity, and then what I teach is where do you want to be in a year? Where do you want to be in a month? How do you want to feel about this? What would you need to think to feel that way? And now what do you need to do to move in the right direction? Mm -hmm. So like my relationship with truth is conveniently flexible because really it's just whatever you think it is. I love that there is no absolute truth. And the reason why we know that is because we can ask ourselves if the thing that we believe is true. And then we can ask, how do we know that's true? And is it true 100% of the time? And 99.9% of the time you're going to get down to I don't know. I mean, I don't know why I think it's true. Somebody told me at some point in time. And the other thing I teach is the choice. You're allowed to change your mind. What was true yesterday where no alcohol for me for the foreseeable future, that was true for me. And then, but I think where we get into trouble, like you talked about in the beginning, that inner bad girl, that inner rebel kind of comes up. The reason she comes up is she is reminding you that you actually can do whatever the fuck you want anytime. Yeah. You can change your mind anytime. She's that truth. Like it's all the truths. And so if you don't acknowledge her, she going to get busy in your subconscious and start mm-hmm. sabotaging shit. Whereas if you say, I can actually drink as much as I want whenever I want, I think that is the true statement that leads people into the path of being able to choose based on the consequences and their experiences and what their goals are, is that you can drink as much as you want whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Let's acknowledge that and move forward. Mm-hmm. It's true. 
And I also think that there is a time where people need to distance distance themselves from whatever thing that is obviously sabotaging their life. We have these subconscious things that might be self-sabotaging us, but then we have these very obvious ones, right? And that can be alcohol. And because of the triple whammy that it is, right, that it's, you know, it, it's ritualistic, it's has the addictive qualities, and it's habitual, we drink in the same, you know, the same way, the same time, most of the time, every there's habit to it, and that our brain actually creates these pathways in order to be able to take a step back and create new pathways. We have to have this period of time where we disrupt our brain, right? It's called the right. pattern interrupt. We need that in relationships as well. I remember this one time with my husband, we'd get in the same fight. Anybody else have this where like every three weeks, it's the same dang fight. And then one day I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this fight anymore. And I meant it like bottom of my heart meant it where I just was like, clap my hands done. If you want to have this conversation in a different way, meaning you want to go get therapy, you want to like completely change the way we have this discussion, then I'll be over there. But otherwise I'm not having this anymore. We have not had that fight. We have not actually had that uh, on repeat fight since then because we need these pattern interruptions in our lives that we mean it, you know, and to, but this is where, where, this is where the caveat is. That doesn't mean it's forever. Like we can always change our mind. It doesn't mean that for some people it might be a hundred days. For me, it was five years. (laughs) We just don't really know. And I'm not here to tell you what that time limit is. Yeah. You know, Colleen isn't here to tell you what that time is. That's something that we have to figure out for for ourselves. And that's why I like to say, I write my life in pencil. Yeah, with an eraser. So I have had conversations with clients about the wisdom of having the same people in my group, of having a mixed community in my group where some women are coming in to, as we jokingly refer to, recover from sobriety. They've been in AA for six years. They want to no longer identify as somebody who used to have a drinking problem. They want to be able to reintroduce safely. And on the same call, we have people who are like you and I showed up where, okay, I need to take a break, an extended break, and really zero alcohol for me is I know that's going to be the shortest distance. There's no right or wrong, but where I'm going, that's the fast pass. And so questioning the wisdom of having conversations about alcohol with people who are practicing having one glass of wine and talking about how it feels with people who are avoiding it. And is that a trigger? And that's Mm -hmm. where I circle back to, if you understand that you have a choice to drink as much as you want, whenever you want, then nobody can give you permission or trigger you. And then that somehow changes your behavior because the radical ownership that you can drink allows you to say, I don't want to drink. That is also true. Like allowing these two truths to be of, I do want to drink. It is really hard, but that's a short-term relief. And I really want to be where I want to be in 30 days, a hundred days, three years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that our truths can change. And I don't know how you work with women, but I talk about not setting a time limit. Arbitrary time limits are fine. But this idea that there's a right amount to drink 
is bullshit because how much you sleep, how much stress you have, your hormones, your life, your circumstances, your marriage, like all of the things. Like I, I remember when I first reintroduced alcohol feeling like, okay, I can have one. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes one was too much. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I kind of wanted a second and then I'd start to get in my head about it. And so I teach women like nobody, you don't know when or how much you're going to drink. That's why if you change your relationship with your body in a present moment experience and respond to your needs in real time, then you will be able to trust yourself with the decision because Mm -hmm. setting rules for your future self to follow isn't going to go well either. So I typically work with women in a hundred day abstinent period to where they have a hundred days of abstinence. And again, I like what you talked about with the wisdom, right? So I'm coming from the wisdom and my experience of what worked for me, Mm -hmm. which isn't the truth for everyone, which I think is so beautiful. But I work a lot with women who have had many data points and have gone kind of this on and off again and, you know, do the 30-day cleanse and they just throw alcohol in there as well. And so really wanting to extend that time to where you can get to where new habits are created. Um, Not saying that those are like going to establish 100% after 100 days, because as me, seven years down the line, I'm still working on creating really good nourishing habits for myself. I'm really focused on that as that ultimate point that you were speaking of, right? That my destination, that thing that keeps pulling me is a curiosity is how good can I get, right? Yeah. Right. How how much more can you know I do to be more alive and create aliveness and vitality in my life? And so what I've noticed is that with women who are constantly starting over again, it's one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake. Mm-hmm. And if we can just take our foot off the brake for a little while and just, you know, do some smooth sailing, then it becomes a little bit more um, easy to identify what other areas we need to hone in on in order to create a little less resistance as you move forward. Mm-hmm. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does. And I think it would be a good time to segue. You know, when we talked about doing a show together, you mentioned that you've got pillars or principles or yeah. whatever. Can you share those? Yeah. Yeah. So I like to call it the vitality roadmap. And this is really like your show is called It's Not About the Alcohol, which I really love about that is it isn't. And what happened with me after, you know, in this time of my life, I'm in my mid forties and my hormones are changing rapidly. And what I noticed is that I was having the same symptoms that I was having when I would drink, where I woke up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, my mind was racing, my heart was racing. I couldn't make these quick decisions. I was doubting the decisions that I was making. I was tired midday and that's why it's not about, about the alcohol, right? We have to really say, okay, first off, not having alcohol is prevalent in our lives. We can actually notice these symptoms within our body. So, so super important to be able to have that intuition and direct conversation with what our body is telling us. But then being able to have the tools to be able to calm ourselves down, nourish ourselves, comfort ourselves. So when I'm looking at this vitality roadmap, I actually want you to actually picture it as as an actual map where you have Mm -hmm. these cities and towns. And within these cities and towns, you have 
highways and country roads that connect them. And then within that, you have, you know, you're within a state if you're in the United States. So then you have your ecosystem or your community. And I want you to then uh, picture that some of these cities are thriving and some of them are up and coming, you know, like the hip little towns. And then you have some that like they're shuttering the windows and the lights are out. And now I want you to think about your own personal map. When I mention these seven areas that I believe need to be turned on for there to be absolute vitality and aliveness in our lives. And if you can picture it, like which ones would be like the main epicenters and then which ones would be, you know, the shuttered towns. Mm -hmm. So we have alcohol as one of those. So little or no alcohol or how alcohol is in our lives. We have sleep. We have movement. We have perceived stress Mm -hmm. versus actual stress, which I'd love to go in and talk about that a little bit more. We have our purpose, our dharma, if you will, or our drive in life. And you can even kind of wrap in spirituality in that. We have our relationship in the environment around us, so our relationships with others and then our environment, and then physical and mental health. So all of these are interconnected, right? They feed on each other because this is we're looking at our overall ecosystem. The way I work with people when we're looking at this, again, most people come to me for alcohol to begin with. And if you think about that within this ecosystem, if alcohol is turned too high, if you're over drinking and whatever that means for you personally, then that affects all of the other areas. It affects our sleep, our movement, our perceived stress, purpose and drive in life, our relationships, all of it, our physical health. And so if we can dial that in, then that will have the biggest ripple effect on everything else. Mm -hmm. Now, once that's dialed in, then we can start looking at these other areas about how to get the lights a little bit brighter, right? Add more green space (laughs) and, you know, get that community, get that one area more active within our, within ourselves. This is ultimately about how can we live our best lives, right? This is our one, this is our experience, our human experience right now in this world. And so how can we make it the best? Mm -hmm. And so this is the way that I have created to really identify what, what I believe makes my life feel like I want to jump out of bed in the morning at, you know, 545 and start journaling and meditating and do all of those things. Cause because of this roadmap. Yeah. And what is your experience with women when, because I tend to project my own into everybody. I think that's pretty normal as a human. Like I understand what you're going through because I've gone through that. But what is your experience with women who are struggling with alcohol and are coming into that period of sobriety? Do you think that it's easier or harder than people expect to let's say, sign up for a program and say, okay, I'm making this commitment. I've invested money. I've got it on my calendar to come to these group calls. I'm going to work this program. Do you think it's easier or harder than people expect? What do you, how, how do you see the first day, week, month going for people? I think that easier than they expect at the beginning. And mm. I think that in the middle is where it gets really sticky and hard. And then it gets easier again. 
Yeah. I remember thinking because I'm intelligent. I thought I was emotionally intelligent. Turns out not quite, but I remember the way I market to people, I kind of market to my former self. Like I knew I could bypass all of the sitting around drawn in habits and the behavior focus. I wanted the mindset and I didn't find it. I created it for myself. I've done the very best I could, but I remember being shocked a day, a week into my sober experience, as I was defining it at the time, that, wow, this is actually amazing. I feel like the pink bubble, as we call it, is nature's nod to your first best effort. You know, it's like we get rewarded. And so I I just remember thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I cannot, capital C, cannot go a day without drinking. Mm -hmm. And then something shifts. And I'm not sure, like I often attribute it to making the decision I attribute it to talking to somebody, allowing yourself to be seen, to asking for help, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to putting the rituals and the exercises on the calendar. I'm not sure. It's probably all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I just think as anybody who's listening, who's struggling with, okay, I do want to do a period of sobriety. I just don't know if I can. I love it. It is easier. And then, yeah, it does get harder. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sure. And then it gets and then it gets easier again. And and the hard is relative. Like it's harder in a different way. It's not harder in the way that it was at the beginning. It's harder because it becomes way more of a decision because you are feeling great and you're and you really have to identify. So I'm feeling better, I'm sleeping better. So now why do I want to go towards alcohol? It just becomes like a different beast. I think that so I'm a self-processor. I do a lot of self-processing. So I think that exactly what you were saying, it all depends on, you know, who you are and your it's your perspective and how you came into it. But what happened for me is I got really tired of hearing myself talk of saying, mm-hmm. like I to- like told you about the breakup, the makeup cycle, and then um, not trusting myself and telling myself I wasn't going to drink for a week. And then it would be two days in or, you know, and then finally is where I, I, and trying to get my husband on board and he and I were going to do it together because he and I drank for 10 plus years before we had, we were married for 10 years before we had kids. We were together much longer than that. So he was my drinking partner. So I had to get to the point where I chose myself above everyone else. So remember earlier I said that I wear multiple hats and sometimes, sometimes one of those hats is stuck on tighter than the other. And that was when I had the wife hat or myself, that's when I chose myself over my relationship. And I said, I have to do this for myself because I'm bored and tired. I can't imagine being this way for another year, two years, 10 years, 20 years. I had the long and boring alcohol story. I'm not memoir worthy at all. I um, drank every couple, two to three days, and I would over drink every two to three days, but I wasn't a daily drinker. And I didn't lose anything. I had great, amazing relationships and a great, you know, a career. And so I was, I never hit bottom, but I was actually, that became more fearful for me. <laughs> this mm-hmm. idea of just kind of floating in the middle somewhere or kind of near the bottom, but never really achieving this full vitality and aliveness that I speak of and really want people to, women to grasp that is possible. It is possible to just like lust after life, to be turned on by life. And yeah. And so that self, that being self 
motivated, if you will. And I didn't feel like amazing a week or two later. And it really did take me about six weeks of hibernating to come out and, and say, wow, this is actually really amazing, this alcohol-free life. But really, it wasn't that. Alcohol was just that thing that was there that was preventing me from feeling and crying and you know being empathetic and all of the beautiful things that we have in life, this emotional intelligence, learning really about who I was. And yeah. And so I think that for me, that's what really turned me on to continue to not drink for quite a while because that drinking was the thing that I did for a couple of decades. So this was the only variable that I had removed to have such exponential improvement in my life that that's what kind of kept it going for me. I don't know if, you know, as we kind of come full circle with your the question that you asked, I think that it does get easier and we everyone talks about finding your why, but it really actually is this thing that will change and come about and really if you stay curious as to why you're feeling so different and good. Yeah. Because in the beginning, let's be honest, you weren't a daily drinker, but I was. And what you were talking about, that regular pattern that you were in, where it was just Groundhog Day. Like it, like you said, I'm not worried about losing everything. I'm worried about nothing ever changing. For God's sake, yeah. get me the hell out of here. And that becomes in the beginning when you first quit drinking, you it is about the alcohol. What are you doing today? Not drinking. That's your activity. And that does, it, the worse, air quotes, worse you were, the bigger the relief, the more improvement you make. But then you hit that point a couple weeks in, you know, maybe t- the 10-day detox. Everybody's different, okay? But at some point, you hit that point where, okay, it's not about the alcohol anymore. Why am I doing this? And like you said, that that pull to go back to what you just fucking crawled out of yeah. is so weird. And that's where you realize this is, you know, how you're thinking, the habits of thinking, and that everything really has to change in this mindset, like with alcohol and with perfectionism, which are not they're not related, but when we're motivating ourselves by shame to do things because we either don't want to be bad or because if we don't do them, we will be bad or whatever. When we're motivating ourselves with shame, the problem is when the shame goes away because you did the thing, so does the motivation to keep doing the thing. Mm. That's the wall that you hit. And then now it's time to rewire your motivation back to self-directed neuroplasticity plasticity to enjoy doing the hard thing instead of seeking relief, which alcohol, you know, it stopped being a relief. You kept using it. But then as you move through that, okay, this isn't about the alcohol anymore. What is about? I think a lot of it is about rewiring your motivation to enjoy the pursuit of Mm long-term goals and the willingness to forego short-term relief so that you can be who you want to be in a year yeah. instead of just pulling the parachute ripcord out of Groundhog Day and waking up in the same damn scene tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And what came up a lot for me was this idea of boredom. Like I was just bored that I didn't drink. I was like, what am I going to do at 5 p.m.? I was literally just 
bored by the not having that kind of like the high and then the low Mm -hmm. and it became more steady. And I had to say, like we talked about earlier, putting this thing out in front of me and saying, okay, if I'm bored, I love, I think Amanda Kuda says it's because you're boring. (laughs) I just love that. And saying, okay, so what's happening at 5 PM? Like, what is my belief around that makes me think that I don't have anything else to do? And what that belief was and the environment, because my dad was a drinker. So at 5 p.m., that's when the house kind of shut down from being a really, you know, like epicenter to really my dad being on his throne, ordering us around to do things for him. And so I didn't learn how to I didn't learn what to do after 5 p.m. So at the age of 30, I had to start learning like how to be active. Yeah. 40. It was 40. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that looking at our environment, it's not like we talked about the pendulum, right? So it went from the onus being on uh, the person who had a gene defect to the onus being on alcohol as addictive substance when really... It's all the stuff in between. Colleen, you talk about emotional intelligence. It's looking at our environment. What is our environment telling us? It's looking at, are we you know, happy within our jobs? It's looking at what is our personal re- history with alcohol? What is our ancestral history with alcohol? It's that radical responsibility that is yeah. just so important to go into a coaching program like yours or in therapy or wherever you go to where you can start really looking at the, the, the gray area, like the true well, gray area of growth. And-, <laughs> and you talk about one of your seven pillars being your dharma. That was my problem. And I still butt up against that. It's like there's this blank spot of who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing in the evenings. I mean, I don't struggle with the urge to drink. Now I just struggle with this kind of, what am I supposed to be doing? Inside my heart, I'm aware of this feeling and this feeling is a longing and it's figuring out what is it that I'm longing for? If I was living my best life, what would I be doing tonight? And then not escaping that feeling, but actually leaning into it because it's either telling me the truth that I want to pursue Or it's a holdover shadow belief that you're not good enough and you should be doing something more and shouldn't you be out to dinner with 87 people and blah, blah, blah. Either way, it's something in my subconscious that's calling for my attention. This feeling of longing is actually my friend that I get to explore and decide, do I, is there something I need to pursue or is the mindset, is there a mindset I need to change about my expectations and all of that? And this is a beautiful process. But it takes a long time because we've got a lot of subconscious crap in there. But I think that evening time when I work with women, that is one of the biggest problems. It's not the desire to drink that is so overwhelming. It's the lack of a virtual reality for some other life that they have not articulated and laid out and created a plan for. And that's the only way to manifest anything is you have to just like we all manifest drinking on Friday night because we talk about it all week. It's going to be so fun and we're going to sit around the fire and we're going to have wine and it never goes the way you think it's going to go. But in our head, there's this easy neuro pathway that exists for what it means to plan to drink with friends. Mm -hmm. And the problem is we have never built those neuro pathways for what it means to spend the evening with yourself 
living your best life. Yeah, exactly. I love that. That is a really good definition of what you what that feeling is. It is longing. And when you say sit with it, it's so true. And maybe people have heard about that. Like you have to lean into those feelings. And one of the things and practices that I've been doing a lot lately when I've had these <laughs> very menopausal anxiety, I don't know what else to call it, <laughs> that comes up is really sitting with those that the feeling, the anxious feeling or whatever it might be, this feeling of longing in the evenings. And so a practice that I offer people who are listening to this podcast to do is try not to put a story to it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's so easy for us to say, okay, this feeling is this thing because I'm doing something wrong or I'm missing out on something or instead of putting a story to it is just feel the feeling. And usually what you'll do, and I work, I do this with my clients and I would say about a third of my clients actually have a really hard time identifying even where that feeling is in their body. Yes. Much less like, you know, feeling it even bigger. But if you can, if you notice, so first off, if you notice that you can't find the feeling, that's okay. Definitely reach out and work with somebody around that. Otherwise, if you can just sit with the feeling, identify where it is in your body and just feel it. Yeah. And notice that it, it will expand and then notice that it will go away. And each time it comes up, the feeling will change. And what's beautiful about this easy, cheap, free practice is that it will go away. It will yeah. eventually go away and you won't have that feeling that way again. And I know it sounds super simple and maybe even woo for a lot of you people that are listening, but it's truly a, a beautiful practice and you can get the book it's called Letting Go. And I'm spacing on the author yes. right now. I talk about it all the time. I don't see it, but letting go. Yeah. yeah. Hawkins. It's a beautiful book that can really help you with that practice. And I will just affirm that practice. And there's a thousand shades of it, right? You know, you can do visualizations, you can do tapping, you can do all sorts of things. But I will say as a little carrot for all my fellow drinkers, this practice is actually addicting. I love tuning into my body. It's a space I like to go. Like there's bubbles in my feet and there's like a, sometimes a sensation of the cold. Like I love feeling my feelings. And where I think the big misconception is we think that thinking about our feelings, I'm lonely, I'm boring, I don't know what to do. Stop thinking and use some sort of practice to put your attention on the energetic sensation because the more you pay attention to it, like you said, it does go away. That is how we process the energy. And i that's probably too much for us to dive real deep into in this episode. But I would re, I would reframe what you said and in, in make it easy to understand. There's a difference between thinking about your feelings and stewing in them. Pity party, pity party stew. <clears throat> Stir it. There's a difference between thinking and feeling. Thinking sucks. And that's why nobody wants to think about their feelings and call it feeling. But feeling the feeling, like when you totally disconnect from the story and it's just a sensation in your body, I love it. As soon as I get mad, I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to go to my room and feel this anger. This is amazing. I'll be back and we'll have a real conversation. Right now you go fuck yourself, but I'm going to be back and we're going to have a more intelligent conversation. And I love it. I just love it. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So we are coming up on time. Can you tell my audience how to find you and, 
you know, anything that you want? Yeah. Think beyond the drink. So that's my handle for everything on TikTok and Instagram. And also my website, which I haven't looked at in years. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can DM me on um, Instagram and I can get back to you there if you have any questions. And then, yeah, what I really just would love to remind every single one of us is that the world needs women in their power, clarity, and just completely turned on by life in order to change this fucking world. And we can do it and we can link arms to do it and never give up on yourself. There's always a new day. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to tell my listeners, you're starting a podcast too. And right now the working title before you've launched is Think Beyond the Drink. Think Beyond the Drink. If that changes, you reach out to me and I'll change it in the show notes. So if you're listening to this in the future and you want to find Camille because we need more of us who are willing to move beyond the sobriety container and talk about real life experiences, the good and the bad and the up and the down and all of it. And I know your podcast is going to be amazing and I'm sure I'll go be a guest on it and we'll all tune in. But so check the show notes for the, the title right now, the working titles, think beyond the drink with Camille Kinsler. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. I have held this episode so that I am releasing this on Camille's launch day. So let's support her. Go find think beyond the drink follow the show. Let's give her a bump in the algorithm and push her into the charts because quite frankly, other women need to know they have options. And please share and review and rate my show. Do all the things. Put it on your social media. Text this episode to a friend because overcoming alcohol use disorder is a big thing and you do need help, but not because you can't do it on your own but because it's so much easier and more fun to have a roadmap from women who have gone before you. I remember hearing in the rooms of AA in early sobriety that the best advice is to find someone who has what you want and ask them how to get it. And the problem was nobody there had what I wanted. So I've put together this podcast and a group coaching program. Camille has done the same. And we are lighting a path so that other women find it easier and more inviting to join us. So thank you for your support and listening to the show and spread the word in whatever way you're comfortable. And I will be posting a second episode this week. I am not sure if it's going to be a solo episode. I'm working on a few. And I also have multiple interviews that are in the queue. So either way, check back tomorrow and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.